Have you seen me dice bag? The Grognard Files. Hello, my name is Dirt the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast, where we talk bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day and today. I'm coming live from my den here at the heart of the northwest of England. On my right is my great library of RPGs and my grognard files. I need to blow the cobwebs off this one as we're covering a game that we had but didn't play very much. Middle-earth role-playing. On my left is the ridiculous homemade shrine to the actor Caroline Monroe. I'll... uh, I'll just give it a tap. Ah, yes. The Eternal Champion has appeared as herself in her role as the trustee of the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation, ensuring that Ray Harryhausen's influence continues to inspire future generations of filmmakers, inspiring people such as Peter Jackson, who of course produced and directed the epic version of The Lord of the Rings for New Line Cinema back in the noughties. I'm completely and utterly surrounded by my stuff. I've bought new editions of the three volumes of The Lord of the Rings because my old single volume edition was stored in the loft of my other house. And years of being exposed to the cold and then the heat and then the cold again have made the pages yellow and foxed. It was a gift from my grandma. She'd written in her trembling handwriting, Enjoy this book, and if you finish it, I hope you don't need glasses. Love from Nan. If you finish it, oh ye of little faith. My English teacher, Mrs Gaffney, who sadly passed away a few weeks ago as I'm recording this, was very encouraging too. Uh, hoping that I could achieve something that she never could. I saw it too much as a trophy, a challenge to be overcome. If you finish it, come and talk about it in class. If you finish it. Blythe and I took our copies on one of our annual trips to London with his mum's Amidrami group. It stayed in my bag because I bought Conan the Adventurer from WH Smith's at the station and I read that instead. Oh, I, I, I tried reading The Lord of the Rings. I really did. I sat stroking my chin, my eyes gliding over the words. The trouble was, Lord of the Rings had been built up in my mind as something important, a life-defining moment. But I thought it was impenetrable. Not that it was difficult, but that it was boring. And Tom bloody Bombadillo, what was that all about? A few years later... I read Michael Moorcock's essay, Epic Pooh, where he critiques Tolkien's work and C.S. Lewis as substandard Christian allegory that belong more to the traditions of children's literature rather than the scientific romances that inspired the pulps. Mervyn Peake's Gormenghast was way better than Lord of the Rings and Paul Anderson's Broken Sword was more of a foundational document of modern fantasy than the crypto-fascism of Middle-earth. I know, I know, it's probably overstated, but it didn't matter because it gave me 
a justification, a shield to hide behind. I didn't like Lord of the Rings because it was reactionary, not because it was boring. I did read it again in my early 20s and I enjoyed it. And I've read it again in preparation for this podcast. I found it rewarding as there's plenty of gaming inspiration packed into those pages, whether it's the richly described topography or the world building that can be found in the appendices. Tolkien shifted the paradigm for what fantasy fiction could do. And he's one of the founders of the archetypes that we enjoy as hobby gamers. In this new edition, it comes with an index. So if you want to find references to Fatty Bolger, very much the Pete Best of the Fellowship, then you can. I've got this idea about, of a Merp scenario, perhaps one ring featuring Fatty and a gang of hobbits tracking down a Nazgul in the Shire after Frodo and the lads leave. Merp was created in 1984 by Iron Crown Enterprises, ICE. And they continue to support it with rich and flavoursome supplements until 1999 when they lost the licence. It was designed by Coleman Charlton using a streamlined version of the generic Rollmaster system. For many people, this was the gateway into the hobby and it's held in affection by people who played it. In this episode, we're honoured to be joined by Liz Danforth, the artist, the editor and project developer You'll recognise her distinctive and magical style from Tunnels and Trolls, Mercenary Spies in Private Eyes, Justice Inc., The Fantasy Trip, Earth Dawn and of course Merp, where she was responsible for bringing to life some of those ice supplements. We talk about her formative years in geekery, art and gaming and her special relationship with Tolkien. Daily Dwarf has written an essay that I'll read which explores how J.R. Tolkien inspired his gaming. I think it was sharing our similar views on Tolkien and Lord of the Rings on Twitter back in 2014 that brought me and Daily Dwarf close together. It's a great piece and I'm sure you'll enjoy it. The first, last and everything this time is from Graham Kinnisberg, who you may remember from episode 14. He created a Tolkien fanzine when he was younger and he went on to be the AD on the television adaptation of the Game of Thrones. Here he talks about the first game he played, the last game he played and the game that means everything to him. Graham has been very helpful in preparing for this episode, giving us some food for thought. As has Steve Ray at Orlanthe R on Twitter, who ran a game for us online. When he sent us 14 pages of tables and a note saying, you'll need these, we assumed he was joking. He wasn't. I'm joined by Judge Blythe, our resident rules lawyer, in the pub to talk about the rules. Now, we happened to be in the pub at the same time as the oldest swinger in town, who insisted on playing his Stars on 45 compilation. Hopefully it's not too distracting. And it'll give you an alternative if you get bored of listening to two chancers talking about Merp. I'll be back at the end. Until then, ramblers, let's get rambling. Open box! 
Welcome to Open Box, the section of the podcast where we look backwards to look forwards, how we were to where we want to be. I'm in the virtual room of role-playing rambling with someone who's fueled our imaginations. In Troll World, the Third Imperium, the Fantasy Trip, Earth Dawn and of course Middle Earth. I'm delighted to be joined by the very inspirational Liz Danforth. Hello Liz. Hello Dirk and thank you very much for asking me to take part in this (laughs) although we're in the same virtual room you're many miles away so where where are you where where, where are you located i live in tucson arizona these days uh when i was doing most of the work of my the years of my career i was in phoenix but i grew up in tucson and when i had a chance to move back here a dozen years ago or so I took the opportunity to come back to Tucson and the mountains look the way I expect them to look and uh, the city feels still like home to me. So I'm pretty happy here. And uh, do you work from home? Is that I do. Yeah. Um, I work full time as a freelancer now. When I came back, I was working for the Tucson Public Library. I'd been working part time many years for the Phoenix Public Library. Uh, I was always a paraprofessional, so I could work a lot of hours. If I didn't have much work, it gave me the opportunity to take a ton of time off because I had no benefit. That meant there were other paraprofessionals who could pick up my hours. And as a consequence, actually, a lot of the paraprofessionals then were writers, artists, musicians. It gave a huge creative boost to the local community because it gave us something to even out the ups and downs of being a freelancer financially. But it also gave us the freedom to say, excuse me, I'm going to work for the next three months on Crusaders of Kazan while I'm developing the Tunnels and Trolls computer game. And I'll still have a job when I come back. Because somebody else would pick up the hours. Or if things were slow, I could work 39 and a half hours. You know, there were were discussions about whether this was abusing us because we had no benefits. We had no, you know, pensions of any kind. We had no health care, of course this being America. But um, but it did give me the, the freedom I needed. When I came to Tucson, I was still working as a paraprofessional, which means that I have a bachelor's degree. I actually have a master's in library work, but my position was a paraprofessional one. They were pickier about how much time I could take away. You know, I would get two weeks vacation total out of the whole year, and that wasn't enough time to be able to go to conventions. And I went full-time freelance because that's really what makes me happy. I was going quietly insane when I was trying to do freelancing just in my spare time. I could not do it. And going to full-time freelance is a financial gamble all the time. Yeah. But I'm a hell of a lot happier. And and what's a a normal day when you're doing a freelance? Everything is different. Mm -hmm. Absolutely everything is different. My usual work day, I would say, is um, I'm a very early riser, so I get up anywhere between 4.30 and 5.30 in the morning. And that is my most creative time. Often, even before I get out of bed, I'll get an idea or I'll have a, you know, something I'll go, oh, that's what I want to work on. Or, you know, here's a bit of dialogue and writing or something. The dog doesn't get fed till like seven. So I have a little time, mess around on the art table or sit down at the computer or something. Every other day or so, I try and go to the gym. Uh, I used to be extremely heavy and had bariatric surgery a couple of years ago. And that gave me a quality of life improvement that is unmatched. Getting the weight off 
and then getting the knee repaired within six months of each other, six, eight months of each other, that enabled me to go back to being the person I used to be. Mm-hmm. And uh, I saw Bear Peters for the first time a few months ago, and he said, you peeled back 20 years. And I said, yes, I did. <laughs> and I'm really glad. So going to the gym is an important part of keeping myself healthy. So do you have to go spend a proportion of your time looking for work, or does work com- come to you? So how do the commissions come in? It has varied over the years. Back in the 90s, and I, I would say in the late 80s and 90s, I had more work than I could possibly do. And I had steady, consistent clients. I had GDW asking me to do Traveler. I had Iron Crown asking me to do Middle Earth. I had Watsi asking me to do Magic. And I had all the work I could possibly want, and I knew I could continue. I knew there would always be work the next day. As soon as I finished something, there would be something else on the agenda. Nowadays, that has changed. I have a lot more private commissions. I don't have very many consistent long-term clients, which makes me uneasy, but so far it's been working out. I don't have a lot of consistent regular business clients who I can count on month to month. I am doing a lot of Magic Fest events for Channel Fireball, Magic the Gathering events, essentially, where I go and I sign cards and I do sketches and talk to people. I get a lot of commissions that way. Some of them are small, some of them are large. Periodically, you know, uh, older clients pop up out of nowhere. You know, Mark Miller will say, hey, are you available? Can you do some drawings? Steve Jackson, when he got the rights back for Fantasy Trip, that was exactly it. Uh, It was a case of, you know, you were my first art commission ever, uh, and I'd like to revisit the the counters with the (laughs) bell-bottoms for Fantasy Trip. And I said, yeah, you betcha. I draw very differently nowadays, and I know how to draw feet so that I don't have to do bell-bottoms, which is why I did them in the first place, because I couldn't draw little feet on the counters. But uh, I also have Patreon, which, you know, thank you, (laughs) also lets me do things that I might not be able to do otherwise. You know, obviously, Tunnels and Trolls and projects for them do. I do whatever comes across my plate. I I will sometimes turn down projects, either because they're going to take too long or I can't get them on my agenda or they don't inspire me for a little bit. I mean, for a long time, I had a sign on my wall that said, freelancers never say no. Now I replace that sign with no crap jobs. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That's not to say that things I've turned down have been crap, but they're things that are not a good match for me. Mm -hmm. I like to draw people. I like to draw organic things. And when people ask me to draw something that's mainly architecture, good match for me. And you mentioned those uh, fantasy trip uh, little counters. And I think (laughs) even though they're very tiny, you have a very distinctive line um, that you can always tell that it's a Liz Danforth painting or Liz Danforth uh, drawing. How did that style develop? And uh, <laughs> are you professionally trained or is it? No, I am almost entirely self-taught. Um, uh, I always drew as a kid. My whole family did art. You know, my dad was a weekend painter and taught me uh, a little bit about sculpture uh, my mom was a crafter of all kinds, uh, so, you know, hook latch rugs and embroidery and, you know, all of the, the fiber arts like crochet and embroidery and all stuff like that and knitting I learned. 
My brother went into jewelry design and glass blowing. My sister got her degree in um, uh, fashion design and then promptly got married and stopped doing anything. But yeah. <laughs> so it was always around me. And as a kid, I thought I wasn't any good. And it wasn't decades later I said, well, of course I wasn't any good. I was the youngest. They had a lot more experience than I did. Mm. But it did mean that, you know, I got sat down at the kitchen table with all of my folks, you know, oil paints and things and said, here, play with it. Okay. And I could, I could try out everything. I went into college, got my degree in anthropology uh, because that was always my, you know, a, a major interest of mine. Uh, but also that's when I discovered fandom and gaming as a hobby and people kept going here will you draw my character it's like sure and i'll give you 20 bucks for it oh sure (laughs) (laughs) and that's how i ended up becoming a professional artist is just because i kept being asked to do stuff uh about the time i started working for flying buffalo i did go back some classes in artwork at the community college because uh someone told me that there was a certain artist art teacher who was really good. You and I joked before the podcast started about it's not a test. I am very test oriented. I (laughs) wanted A's. I wanted to take no art classes because I didn't think I could get an A. So by going back after I had all my degrees and all of this stuff, I no longer worried about grades. (laughs) And I could take the classes. And I would have I was getting A's anyway, but I was already practiced. I already had developed my own style by that. Yes. And uh, that taught me a little bit about things like perspective that I had never gotten around to learning about color theory, just the real basic stuff that I never had occasion to learn how to do. So, so you, you, you said that your style developed. Who inspired that um, style? Where did that come from? Overall, and I'll try to loop this back if I can remember to yeah. your question specifically about the Steve Jackson game silhouettes. Um, a lot of the way I learned to draw was by looking at the books I had around me as a child. And that included everything from Tolkien's illustrations in The Hobbit to Aubrey Beardsley, uh, black and white, beautiful line, Art Nouveau. And that still shows up very strongly in a lot of my art. Uh, Alphonse Mucha was, again, that same Art Nouveau. You have to remember that that was very much 60s style that was very very popular back then so it was all around me in the house and out my folks did have a lot of art books and so i was able to look through those kind of things i remember one of the books was about american indians and it was all full of black and white line drawings that were really really finely detailed and it wasn't until i ran across them years that looked at the book again years later i tried to copy those drawings it wasn't until i realized that i was looking at etchings mm-hmm. and thinking that's how I needed to draw that that's how it had been done mm-hmm. not realizing also that they probably had been drawn this big and reduced to this size mm-hmm. much smaller and that's why I mean my dad was a civil engineer he was the director of public works for the city of Tucson when I was growing up but that meant he had rapidographs to do layouts and, and uh, the, the work of a city city engineer but I kind of inherited his rapidographs, and that's what I learned to ink with. Mm. And I was using six aughts to 
to get them small enough. And people were going, how can you even see that? And it was like, <laughs> well, that's why I'm wearing glasses today. <laughs> I, I would draw with the, my nose on the paper. And you know, nowadays, I, can't, I literally cannot see well enough to use a 6R, mm -hmm. uh, even with magnifying lenses on. But I do use regular glasses plus magnifying lenses to draw mm -hmm. as small as I do still. Really, the place I learned to ink as a consistent thing for publication was my first Star Trek fancy. And I go back far enough that this was really, really early, back when Spock and Alien and things like that were, were hot. They, it was brand new. There was no internet. There was no grand fandom, but it was the roots that became that. I had gone to hear Ray Bradbury talk at the University of Arizona here in Tucson. And when I walked out of uh, the auditorium, on the kiosk out front, there was a ditto machine flyer for new Star Trek fanzine. And I went, fanzine, that's the same as magazine. I don't know what fanzines are. I sent off my $5 or whatever it was to get this thing. Got back more ditto pages. <laughs> you know, that old smelly, I don't know yeah. whether you guys had it there, but that's, that's what I grew up with. This was, I would have still been in high school. So maybe 15, 16, I was going... This isn't a professional, any, this is a piece of shit. <laughs> and I wrote this snotty letter to the editor going, what the hell did you charge me $5 for this piece of crap? And the story is lame and the pictures are awful and blah, blah, blah. And she said, okay, you have so many good ideas. How would you like to be my co-editor? And I said, well, okay. I'll do that. <laughs> I met, she was, uh, she lived in Phoenix at the time. She was coming down to the U of A to uh, start college, got along pretty well, and uh, worked together on the fanzine. I think we turned out like 12 issues or so of it. Once we moved from copying drawings on ditto sheets, which is a wax resist mm -hmm. kind, she had it, she literally had it hand-cranked ditto machine for the first couple of issues. <laughs> but then we moved to, okay, we've, we're making enough, let's go ahead and take this and publish. It. But then I had to learn to draw. I drew, she liked it. It wasn't inked. And she said, you have to learn to ink. And so I took my dad's rapidographs and I learned to ink and I looked at what she had and I looked at stuff I'd wanted to do. Oddly enough, and again, this is going to date me, uh, there were a whole slew of Man from Uncle things that had that kind of half black, half white drawing. Uh, because I was a huge Man from Uncle fan, as well as a Star Trek fan, uh, I learned to copy some of that look in some of the drawings I was doing. Because I was still very much in that mindset scheme by the time I first went off to college, which is right when I first, like I said, that's when I encountered fandom as a whole and gaming and the Cosmic Circle and what became the Fellowship of the Troll. When Steve Jackson said, do me these little tiny counters, it was like, I have to keep, I can't do that, that etching mm -hmm. and those six odd pens, there's no room. So what can I do that's going to be a sharp, clean silhouette and still look like something? And that's the fantasy trip counters. And yeah. that's why that particular style exists. And like I said, the, the bell bottoms fit because I couldn't draw feet very well. <laughs> feet and hands are hard to draw at the best of times, but at the time I, I couldn't draw feet at all. And bell bottoms were all around me in the late 70s. <laughs> 
So I said, what the hell? Why not? You know, who cares? <laughs> They're so small, nobody will remember. Yeah. <laughs> and they're a design classic now, aren't they? You know, they're part, they're part of uh, gaming history, those little, uh, those little silhouettes. I've so much shit for those for 40 years. <laughs> Brilliant. So, so you mentioned gaming, and um, we always ask, what was your first game? Can you recall what you played? Like I said, Star Trek introduced me to fandom as a whole, and I started attending science fiction conventions like Westercon. I had joined the Phoenix fan group, which was called the Phoenix Cosmic Circle. This was people who enjoyed reading science fiction, writing science fiction, writing APAs, the amateur press associations that were done back then. Again, dittoed and mimeographed. And if you're lucky, they were actually, you know, something printed. We would filk because I was also playing, I was also a guitar player and singer. Over in the corner, there was a pack of proto gamers. And I put it that way because gaming wasn't seen as a hobby thing outside of, oh, those Napoleonic people who are all weird, you know, jackboot fandom. It was Steve McAllister, Bear Peters, Ken Sinandre, you know, Chuck Dewey, a couple of others who would move in and out, you know. They were playing Risk and Regatta and Diplomacy. And because Ken was in the mix, they were doing alternate versions. They were doing things like Hyborian Diplomacy. <laughs> so he would make a map of Hyboria because he was a big Conan and REH fan. And we would play that. And that was my first introduction to hobby games. You know, I grew up in a family that played games so that I moved into that crowd pretty easily. And I wasn't treated differently for being female. There were other women playing. I wasn't dating any of them. So it wasn't like, oh, you're my girlfriend. Come play with me. It was just, we're all fans. We're all here together. Here's interesting things to do that we're all meeting up on on Friday nights to have something to do together. Mm -hmm. And... uh, you know, sometimes I'd be working on an APA, sometimes I'd be drawing, sometimes we would be talking about the writer group, and other times I'd be over in the corner playing games. That crowd is where Ken Sinandre formed when he, you know, came across uh, his early edition of Dungeons and Dragons and said, I, you know, it's too complicated, I want to make my own, and did his own thing. I didn't see that very first edition. Yeah, uh, Rob Carver was part of that group too, and Rob did the drawings for him. We were all headed to a WesterCon that year, Western Science Fiction Convention. I think it was probably LA. Uh, all of us were broke, poor college age kids. Uh, Steve McAllister had a gigantic white panel van. He was one of the older ones among us, so he actually had a vehicle, and we were going to drive over from Phoenix to Los Angeles. So we all crowded in the in the van together. You know, Ken and Bear and everybody else was talking about, hey, we've got this game. We'll play this in the evenings when if we're not attending a panel or doing what you do at a convention. And that was my introduction to TNT. And uh, what do you remember of that? The, my first real recollection of the game, playing the game, was after we had returned home. I think we were over at Beattie and Hilly Arthur's house. Ken was running something, and I was looking at the weapons list and going, I don't know what any of these weapons are. <laughs> Having some of them explained to me, I think it was Bear who gave me, he had a spare copy of Arms and Armor of All Ages and All Times, huge fat volume uh, that Ken had relied on heavily to create that weapons, that first weapons chart. And he said, I've got a spare copy here, you take it. And that enabled me then to draw Uh. all the things 
over the years because I could refer back to all of those. And then, of course, I've got tons of other weapons. And now I know the difference between, you know, a manipole and a grisom, you know. <laughs> but uh, back then, I didn't know a shamshir from a, from a jambia. Yeah. <laughs> I think uh, a lot of us have been educated from your drawings of uh, the weapons in TNT. Yeah, that's probably the first time I saw a curie. I remember in, in, I think it was in City of Terrors, I was trying to draw one of each of the uh, bows mm-hmm. that were listed as possible. And I had to put a, you know, out for research on the docu because I didn't know what it was. I didn't know it was a repeating crossbow yeah. or what the hell. It, I mean, I knew it was a repeating crossbow because that's the way it was written, but I had no idea what it looked like and it didn't make any immediate sense to me uh, about how a crossbow would be mechanized that mm-hmm. way. Yeah. But eventually somebody said, oh, it's here. And I was like, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> then I could draw it. <laughs> So as as well as gaming and your art and fandom, I know that you're also a voracious reader and uh, <laughs> um, and particularly talking because this uh, podcast is all about uh, merp and about uh, talking. So talk to about to, about what influence talking's had on you uh, on on your life. Tolkien made me literate. My folks read science fiction and fan fantasy as part and parcel of what they read. They weren't fans, and they didn't read exclusively this, but it was just part of everything they read. And somehow or another, my folks had come across the early British editions of The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. My first recollection of understanding printed words, my mother was reading me The Hobbit. And I can remember the picture of, you know, Tolkien's drawing of Hobbiton, on the left-hand side of the page, and her hand tracking over the the dark lines on the other page. And every time she hit this certain shape, she said, the. And that was my Helen Keller cup water moment of literacy. I literally learned to read from The Hobbit. And for many years, I said, that can't possibly be a correct memory. I've invented that somehow. Doubly so when I found that the hardback edition that I have um, was dated publication when I was in like third grade. And I read before first grade. So I said, this can't be right. But then uh, close to the end of her life, it occurred to me to simply ask her. I said, this is what I remember. Could it have been true? She said, yeah, I read you The Hobbit as a kid. And it's possible. And the reason your books are more recent is that your sister's boyfriend took the 1953 edition. (laughs) 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 So they had an early edition. That's what she would have been reading to me then. And so I think that literally Tolkien is how I learned to become literate. It was many years before I was able to read Lord of the Rings. I kept trying because I loved The Hobbit and I read it a bunch once I was able to read for myself. Uh, But of course, it's a a lot more mature of a book. But I've read it. I can't think how many times, and especially when I was doing all the work for Middle Earth, uh, they would make some reference to something, and it was like, okay, I need to go back and reread this. Because you asked earlier on about how you get assignments. With uh, Middle Earth, I would usually get at least a description. They did a lot that was not canon. There was, you know, maybe it would be nothing but a name or just even a reference. You know, the Nazgul aren't named except for a couple of so I would go through and get the feel, the, the, the internalized 
feeling of Middle Earth back, if I felt I was losing track, find little bits and pieces of things to put into the artwork and go, okay, you know, this detail will bring this alive. Uh, this will be an Easter egg for someone who has read the books and paid attention. I mean, on Twitter, um, one of our listeners, Per, has been urging me to do a Merp episode. And week by week, he's been uh, showing some of the arts that appeared in those. And I know, yes. at the time, so I know at the time you were saying that, you feel that that's some of your best work. Yeah. And, and, and why, why do you feel that's, that's interesting? Well... <sighs> Because I have such a deep connection and because mm. Tolkien changed the world, mm -hmm. changed our world, I know people who are geeks and fans who have never read the books and have no desire to. But they're few and far between, and even they understand what a hobbit is, and even they understand the impact what he wrote had on all of us. Sometimes for better or worse, there's an awful lot of very derivative stuff, but how you know it's hard to to read a fantasy nowadays in which you don't have elves and dwarves and the elves and the dwarves argue with each other and you know why is that well that's because that's what tolkien did mm -hmm. and you know we are getting away from that being the only thing available and i i love to see the variety and the diversity and the much wider reach that we're getting nowadays but he opened the door and made it possible to have the other, the others be accepted and acceptable. So it was very special to be able to do real licensed stuff and not say, oh, well, this is just um, a skinny guy with Spock ears. No, this is Legolas. Okay. I could draw characters I had lived with my whole life. And I wanted to do justice. Mm -hmm. to it so i really pulled out all the stops pretty much every time when iron crown asked i had done three black and whites i think for the nazgul as they were falling under shadow the, i did kamul witch king and i can't remember which i think of Martha as black and white illustrations in there, but i haven't done all of them and the art director at the time and i can't remember i think it was jessica negrim uh said we want to use those and we want to colorize them for the uh, computer card game or for the for the card game. And I said, no, I will use those as my original drawings and please give me the rest of the nine. <laughs> <laughs> and they said, uh, we were gonna spread it out. I said, please give me the rest of the nine. And they did it and I was like, yay <laughs> um, getting getting to do those, you know, using using the original sketches the original black and whites as my models and then doing all the rest of them just made me happy <laughs> and, and yeah. they, they they are um they are amazing pieces i mean and, and do you still uh read a lot of fantasy and science fiction yeah i do right now i'm i'm reading the gentleman bastards scott lynch and loving the hell out of it oh my god i love it it's really really good yeah it's very excellent isn't it yeah Oh God! And it, it's so dense. He just amazes me. Usually, I read, I zoom through books, mm -hmm. and it's like I've been reading for hours, and I've gone, "Boy, he's got a lot going on in here." <laughs> and uh, Eyes it, of Lakimora. yeah, it, and uh, it really fires up your uh, gaming imagination. Uh, that setting, doesn't it, as well? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. You know, I went through a real spate 
while I was recovering from the various surgeries of just guzzling down books because I couldn't really do much of anything but lie on the chair and, and read. And I read everything. I'd read uh, Assassin's Apprentice, the early uh, Robin Hobb books early on. But this time I said, wait, I missed out. I started missing Tawny Man and a lot of this stuff. So I went back and reread the entire, everything she had written, was hyper, super impressed with that. And, and I know that um, obviously you've, you've moved and uh, you perhaps don't have your gaming group uh, that you have, but I know from speaking to you that you play World of Warcraft and you, you've mentioned that before. So uh, tell us about that because that's not something I've never been drawn into. Um, so try and get me, evangelize, get me, get me I, on board. Well, I won't because if I, if I was going to evangelize someone, I would have evangelized Bear Peters years ago. <laughs> and uh, he said very succinctly and very correctly, I can't talk a dragon out of its gold, so I don't want to play. <laughs> okay, so I get it. For me, um, who I play with makes as much difference as what I'm playing. And I've made friends in WoW. Uh, I've played since Vanilla. I played for 15 years shortly after launch. Um, I didn't play the RTS before. I have since. Uh, so I wasn't familiar with the world. I got introduced to it because I had a client, uh, Joe Ibarra, who had been with Electronic Arts, and I'd worked with him a little bit, and Dave Arneson, when they were, when, when they were working on a job together, and Dave and uh, Joe brought me in as concept artist and idea wonk. And that project never went anywhere, sadly enough. Joe then later got a uh, license for Stargate Atlantis and wanted to build an MMO and got in touch with me to ask if I wanted to work on this project. And I said, what's an MMO? <laughs> he said, okay then. Uh, go out, play RuneScape. Uh, if you like that, go play WoW because that's state-of-the-art, recent launch. And I never worked on the Atlantis project and ducked a bullet. If, if you look through the history, it's, it, it had a horrible, terrible, huge possibilities, but just complete meltdown of a project. I went into WoW going, oh, well, I'll explore this a little and I'll learn how MMOs work and then I'll be able to work in the industry for doing this kind of thing. <laughs> I'm still learning every day 15 years later <laughs> uh, it is and I also learned that I did not want to work for the industry <laughs> I don't want to work 80 hours a week thank you very much when launches so I've done some computer game work but uh, you know for a long time I mean I, when I bought it my concept of what of who played video games was entirely built on the bad press that was happening at the time. Mm -hmm. So I walked into Best Buy and said, I want to buy this game for my son. <laughs> but I knew I couldn't say I was buying it for me, a middle-aged female. Hell no. And uh, I played it. And I, you know, at the very beginning, I went way out of my way to obscure the fact that I was female in any way, shape or form. I didn't let anybody know, you know, I mean, people who knew me in person, of course, and I was trying mm -hmm. to like Bear or Steve McAllister. I played for about a year and a half with Steve because um, he did like it, the idea. Met other people that, you know, they would see that I was wearing, as I am now, a WoW t-shirt. The, uh, you know, oh, Border Alliance. It was like, eh, both. <laughs> <You know? laughs> 
Now it's for the Alliance, but back then it was a lot of fun. You instantly have something in common with someone who plays, mm-hmm. if you in person. You know, I just was at the Ren Fair, the Arizona Renaissance Fair this weekend, and I remember wearing a Wout shirt there, and people at the show would go, oh, hi, you know, what do you play? What server are you on? And we would instantly, instantly have something to talk about. I attended BlizzCon, and the thing that blew my mind and was so awesome was there was every social class, every ethnic variety, every age. You know, I was standing there with one of my guild mates um, in line waiting to do something or other and was talking about the mage I play, and uh, um, who's my main. My main character is a human male mage. And, uh, you know, they come in a variety of you could be a fire mage, you can be an ice mage, uh, you can be an arcane mage. And I was at the time I was playing Frost, and there was a like a 15-year-old girl behind me going, oh, yeah, I play that. And we instantly could talk. Mm-hmm. I mean, total strangers instantly had plenty to converse about and then could carry on to a conversation and connect beyond that. Uh, many of the people I play with nowadays are people I've originally met in-game and then consequently met in person. I know plenty of people who don't play. The people I was staying with up in Phoenix don't play. Um, But by the same token, they are board gamers, tabletop gamers. Uh, So it's not a, you know, video games or other games. It's video games and board games and tabletop games and so forth. And we can all share common languages and conversations. But I can log into WoW and... Five minutes later, I'm having an adventure, and four and a half minutes after that, I'm probably talking with a guildmate over Discord. It was vent, it was other things for a long time, but instantly, and we can just converse whether we're actually playing on the same screen or not, and we can because I'm a raider. These are people that I can meet, and we already know each other. Yeah. We're like pen pals would have been, you know, 100 years ago, who had been talking and writing to each other for 15 years. That's, you know each other a lot. <laughs> uh, that, that's great, great to hear that you're still connecting with that fan community uh, like you did way back then. Well, th- thanks for that, Liz, and we'll see you next time when you face the Games Master screen. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right, Dwarf! Talking and me. It's complicated by the Daily Dwarf. Hmm, talking, talking, where to start? How about with Jackanory? Jackanory, for the non Brits among the Grog Squad, was a kids' TV programme where the celebrity read out a children's story to camera, occasionally cutting away to illustrations from artists like Quentin Blake or Arthur Rackham. With the 3,000th episode on the horizon, viewers were asked to vote for their favourite story for this landmark programme. The hands-down winner was The Hobbit. And so, on the 1st of October 1979, the stops were all duly pulled out as a ten-part reading of The Hobbit started. Not with one, but four storytellers. Jam Francis, Bernard Cribbins, an excitable Bilbo, David Wood and Maurice Denham, a stern stentorian Gandalf. I've never heard of the book or of J.R.R. Tolkien before seeing this, but it made quite the impression. 
dwarves, hobbits and dragons. Oh my! So much so that I pestered my parents to buy me the book, which I then read several times over the next year. The Hobbit is a justified children's classic, wonderfully constructed with a compelling narrative that builds impressively, although you have my permission to skip the chapter with Bjorn. And I very much enjoyed reading it again, this time aloud to my kids a couple of years ago. It was lovely to see them captivated, just as I'd been all those years before. But back to 1981. I'd now embarked on Tolkien's follow-up, The Lord of the Rings, an altogether more formidable prospect. Over 1,000 pages! Good grief! This was the single-volume Unwin edition. The contrast between the pastoral idyllic shire on the front cover and the dark, oppressive Mordor on the back hinted of the adventures within. And that summer, while accompanying the four hobbits out of the shire, pursued by the fearsome ring wraiths, I also took the decision to ask my brother if I could borrow and take a look at that weird rule book for that game about dragons. Or was it dungeons? So Tolkien was very much my gateway into gaming, and The Lord of the Rings is inextricably linked in my mind with my discovery of role-playing games. Following the story through the mines of Moria to Helm's Deep, Minas Tirith, and ultimately to Mordor, fed ideas and possibilities into my nascent RPG brain. And in turn, my obsession with these games led to the discovery to a wider world of fantasy fiction, to writers like Michael Moorcock, Robert E. Howard and Fritz Lieber, and they, in turn, sparked further game ideas. Each passion drove further interest in the other. I loved the immediacy and drive of Moorcock, and the more pulp adventure of Howard, I was particularly impressed with the wit and invention of style of Fritz Lieber, who quickly became my favourite fantasy author. Fafford and the Grey Mouser struck me as an archetypical D&D characters. They weren't out to save the world, they just wanted to make a quick book and have some fun and adventure while doing so. This chimed much more with the D&D games that I was involved in at the time. The PCs were mercenaries, delving into dungeons looking for loot. They didn't have high-minded, noble ideas of many of Tolkien's protagonists. They were more at home on the grimy streets of Lankmar than the hallowed halls of Rivendell. So, despite the fact that I may never have discovered RPGs without Tolkien, I left the good professor behind and never really returned to The Lord of the Rings. Until now. When Dirk said he would be tackling Tolkien and Merp on the pod, I thought I'd better go back to the source and pick up the old doorstop once more. Now, I found reading The Lord of the Rings quite a daunting task the first time round. It was hard going at times, so much so that I felt I needed a breather. So I had a bit of a hiatus between finishing The Two Towers and starting The Return of the King. Too much ent portrait and an impressionable age can do that to a lad. The prospect of tackling it once more was no less daunting. 
Rather than read the whole thing again, I decided on a match-of-the-day style edited highlights approach. I'd read a couple of the exposition-heavy chapters, The Shadow of the Past and The Council of Elrond, to maximise my exposure to the plot and then concentrate on the bits I'd remembered as particularly exciting from my first reading. This would enable me to sidestep all the whimsy at the beginning involving mushroom farms, and not to mention old Tom Bombadil, merry dolling his way around the forest like an unholy love child of David Bellamy and Palmer's. Instead, I could once again walk into the haunted halls of Moria, creep into Mordor, at the mercy of Shelob the Great, and thrill to the siege of Minas Tirith and the Battle of Pelennor Fields. I got a bit distracted at time, uh, reading The Dino Files, a collection of the original flesh strips from 2000 AD, took precedence for a while, but I made it through. So, what did I learn? Well, as it turned out, there was a good deal to enjoy. Perhaps what came across more than anything is, unsurprisingly, Professor Tolkien's love of language. He simply delighted in it. At best, he used it marvellously to conjure the atmosphere, as in this description of Moria. All about them, as they lay, hung the darkness, hollow and immense. They were oppressed by the loneliness and vastness of the Dolven halls and endlessly branching stairs and passages. The wildest imaginings that dark rumour had ever suggested to the hobbits fell short of the actual dread and wonder of Moria. Or how about this description of Shelob? She served none but herself, drinking the blood of elves and men, bloated and grown fat with endless brooding on her feast weaving webs of shadow, for all living things were her food and the vomit darkness. You could get carried away at times, though, and descend into hard-going, cod-biblical tone, where often when trying to describe the matters of great significance. The chapter of the field of Cor Malon, describing what happened after the ring was destroyed, oops, spoilers, was a significant example. And that's saying nothing about the poetry. Unfortunately, this set the pattern for much high fantasy that's been written since. The campaign to expunge the words low and mayhap from the English language begins here. Tolkien liked to take his time with storytelling to let his language slowly build the tale, to savour the details. After my whistle-stop tour of The Lord of the Rings, I read Paul Anderson's The Broken Sword. It was interesting to compare them. Both were significantly influenced by Norse myths, but Tolkien's languorous approach was in sharp contrast to Anderson's, for whom the pace of the plot was key. Similar sources led to very different styles and tales. Tolkien's two key strengths for me were his world-building and his character's. Highlighting his skill in world-building is probably unnecessary, but nevertheless I was struck, reading it again, that The Lord of the Rings has an authenticity that many other fantasy sagas lack. There's a permanence, a history, suffused into every mountain, every forest, everyone had a tale to tell. Historical characters and details were often only mentioned in passing. 
but they added to a sense of deep time that pervaded the story. All those wonderful maps too helped to build the perception of Middle-earth as a real place. Many writers have tried to emulate Tolkien's achievement. Few, if any, have succeeded. Much has been written on the large array of characters in The Lord of the Rings by people far more perceptive than me, so I won't repeat much here. Suffice to say, I found Tolkien's flawed characters the most interesting. He was very good at describing individuals slowly worn down by a particular character defect, to the point where it consumed them and corrupted their entire nature. I think my favourite character from the book is Soromon. While ostensibly he started out as one of the good guys, it was soon clear that he couldn't be trusted. Corrupted by his lust for power, Soromon put a human face and a believable motivation to the want of a better word, evil in Middle-earth, while Sauron remained a remote and distant threat whose motivations could only be guessed at. We repeatedly heard the voice of Saruman and were witness to his fall. With his belief of unfettered progress and his exploitation of the land and its people, Saruman stood as first Tory in Middle-earth and a symbol of how power corrupts absolutely. For a once great wizard, I did find his end somewhat ignominious, but I suppose that was Tolkien's point. Another character I thought was particularly well drawn was Denethor, the steward of Gondor. Here Tolkien gave us an individual brought low by circumstance. His largely correct belief that Gondor stood alone against the forces of Mordor, driving him to despair. The death of one son and the apparent death of another drove him past the point of no return, subsuming him in grief. His descent into madness left him incapable of hope. A tragic character then, but a compelling one. Despite skimming much of the story, my abridged reading of The Lord of the Rings brought back many memories, reminding me of how much I enjoyed it all those years ago. Even just dipping in here and there, the story maintained its epic feel, its sense of history on the move, its atmospheric locations and dramatic set pieces. Despite my preference for the other fantasy authors with more spare writing style, I still retain an affection for J.R.R. Tolkien, the writer who first led me down this path. But will I ever read The Lord of the Rings cover to cover again, taking on the birthday parties, the endless poetry and the other verbiage? Well, maybe. As they say, the road goes Ever on. Hi, my name is Graham Kinneber, sometimes known as Kenny Graham, on various social media and gaming forums, and I've been asked by Dirt to provide you with my first, last, and everything in RPGs. Now, that might imply to you that I'm going to mention at most three games, but like any good gamer, I'm going to flex the rules a little and see if I can test the format to squeeze in just one or two more titles. My first game will come as no great shock. It was 1980, we were a bunch of token nerds, and the game we discovered was Dungeons & Dragons, 
or to be more precise, basic Dungeons & Dragons. The box set with the iconic cover by the late David Sutherland and which shipped with B1 and such of the unknown as a module. Uh, once we got over our doubts about whether we're doing it right, we never looked back and our love for the hobby was born. Now, in some ways, my gaming has come full circle since those dim and distant days. Uh, I'm currently playing in Neil Benson, aka the old Scouser, online old school essentials game of Night's Dark Terror, which is situated in the Grand Duchy of Karamikers, just a shortish hex crawl away from the location of B1's memorable dungeon. I've also been able to reacquaint myself with Surfer with the Wizard, my first ever character, who was a pre-gen from and such of an unknown, uh, and I've done that through buying the Goodman Games volume Into the Borderlands, which is a reverential reprint of that module, and the equally legendary B2 Keep on the Borderlands. Now, my last game at the time of writing this was an online game of Delta Green, which I ran on the Roll20 platform. But as threatened, I'm going to risk incurring the wrath of Judge Blythe and twist the rules slightly in order to give a shout out to the last game that I played, as God and Gary Gygax intended, on a face-to-face basis with all of the players in the same room. Uh, Don't worry, I will be returning to Delta Green. Now don't get me wrong, uh, playing on Roll20 and the like is an excellent solution when you and your players are separated geographically but the best play is still in the room around the table. And on that definition, I can say that the last game I played was Cubicle Seven's excellent Tolkien RPG, The One Ring. With The Professor being my gateway drug to RPGs, and with very fond memories of a long-running, if somewhat gonzo, merp campaign played in my teens, it was only natural that I'd want to give this game a try, and it hasn't disappointed so far. I've twice been able to run Gareth Hanrahan's excellent Old Bones and Skin scenario from the Bree sourcebook, once with some fellow Grog Squadders on our memorable hashtag One Ring Road Trip weekend, and more recently at home with some friends old and new, uh, one of whom was the Dungeon Master on that aforementioned first D&D foray uh, into the In Search of the Unknown module back in 1980. Now, if Tolkien was my first literary love when it came to the realms of the fantastical, then my second was most definitely H.P. Lovecraft, which brings me to my everything in gaming at Call of Cthulhu. Uh, My late Uncle Jerry, a lifelong fan of fantasy and science fiction, gave me my first Lovecraft paperback a mere three or four months prior to our group discovering the first edition of what was then, believe it or not, a new thing in gaming. Uh, I was hooked on both the fiction and the RPG from the off, and I'm repeatedly drawn back to its near-perfect gaming blend of real and fragile characters facing occult mysteries, ancient maddening lore, and unspeakable cosmic horrors. The game has resulted in a plethora of amazing material, from legendary campaigns such as Mask of Nihilathotep, right through to whole new games such as Trail of Cthulhu. And if I didn't love the game enough, it was taken to new levels of excellence by the creation of Delta Green, first a setting for Call of Cthulhu, and a separate role-playing game line in its own right. This takes Call of Cthulhu's already great elements and filters it through a further lens of modern conspiracy theories, the pre- and post-millennial zeitgeist, and some of the best and most fiendishly inventive horror writing you'll find anywhere in gaming. Call of Cthulhu really does seem to bring out the best in role-playing writers, and while I'm always open to the new and the shiny, I really do suspect it will be my everything for years to come. That's all from me. Uh, thanks to Dirk for inviting me to do this, and a big thanks to him and Blythe 
for all their work on the pod and in bringing together such a great community of gamers. Just Blythe, rules. Hello, I'm with Blythe. Hello. Hello, we're in a d- drinking hall. Not a <laughs> drinking hall. Yeah, not a nasty, dirty Same hall. Like a drinking hall. A uh, wet hall filled with the ends of worms. Oh, yeah. And uh, smell. Oh, hang on, I've got that wrong. And the oozy smell. Yeah, not a dry, bare, sandy hall with nothing in it to sit down or eat. It was a dirk hall, and that means comfort. Welcome to my dirk hall. Okay. All right. Yeah. Because we're in the realm of Middle Earth. Oh, of course, yes, of course. Sorry. I was getting worried then. Confused. Yeah. So when, when, when you think, and I know that previous on previous occasions we've talked about more copy, we've talked about Tolkien. Yeah. yeah. When was the first time that you uh, read uh, Tolkien? Well, Tolkien was, I think it was probably the first fantasy book I read. Um, the Hobbit. I, the Hobbit, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, the, the, the Hobbit's <laughs> great, really. The Hobbit, the is, Hobbit is, is fantastic. Yeah, that kind of opened the door to other fantasy fiction. I think it must have been about 11 or something like that, maybe. It's before yeah. I was into role-playing games. Yeah. yeah I read the, read the Hobbit. Um, I think I'd seen I think I'd seen a bit of the Jack and Ori thing as well. Yes. Yeah. That came before or after, but I think I'd seen a bit of that. It kind of piqued my interest. I had it read, I had it read to me at primary school over a period yeah. of time I remember that that and Lion the Witch yeah, and the Wardrobe it was a staple wasn't it yeah of, I think uh, at school we'd done we'd done the Lion the Witch and the Wardrobe before the Hobbit and I think actually it was Lion the Witch and the Wardrobe that led me on to the Hobbit yeah you know, yeah that kind of fiction when it came to um, Lord of the Rings um, I, I struggled a bit uh, reading it yeah. and I took against it for a couple of reasons mm-hmm. one of the reasons I took against it was because of the Hobbit computer game drove me mad wait 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 wait, wait. you are dead yeah <laughs> that was <laughs> what I was thinking it, it didn't really it, it didn't really fire up your, your imagination but the other reason was that Simon our friend Simon yeah, yeah. held the Tolkien and Lord of the Rings with such reverence yes. that yes as a contrarian, I yeah, deliberately I, I went against it. I think I was the same. We were both like that. That the Hobbit—it's it's always that thing where the Hobbit I discovered without knowing much about Tolkien. I didn't know much about yeah. Hobbit, the Hobbit. Oh, I read it. I thought this is great. I didn't know much about anything. Then suddenly you get into Lord of the Rings, and then you encounter people and hold it in reverence, and it has this kind of reverence. And as you say, particularly when you're a teenager, but even. Nowadays, to some extent, there's a temptation to just react against it. I think, yeah. oh, you know, yeah, yeah, put it on the pedestal kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> so why did you buy Merp? Because you, you bought, you bought <laughs> yeah, Middle no, Earth. Yeah, 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 Middle Earth. Because it wasn't the uh, Games Workshop one. You no, bought. I had the original one. Yeah, the original Iron Crown one. So why did you get it? Well, I think I think I got it because of again we've talked about this many times the Prime Directive. Yeah. Because the Prime Directive wasn't there that Simon had 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 AD and D. Um, and, I, and I remember looking at Merp and thinking, well, AD&D is, is, I mean, I would argue now it's probably not very Tolkien-esque at all, no. AD&D, is it? But it, it has elements of Tolkien in it, so that elves and dwarves is, you know, and halflings, it's, it's Tolkien-esque in that sense. Um, and I suppose I thought that Merp would be, would get around the Prime Directive in that it was a fantasy game that would be a bit like D&D. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, it is a bit like D&D. And that's the trouble with it, <laughs> in the end. 
in yeah. the end, that's that's part of the problem. Yeah. But, you know, we might come on to that. But I remember playing it. I remember playing it because it was one of those games where we did it around the dining room table. Yeah. It was held in reverence. It was given the reverence, the due reverence that it was that it deserved. Yes, because yes. it was loved. It's the token you're getting a dining room table experience. Yeah, yeah. Mr. Well, the Lovecraft, you're getting the coffee table. <laughs> yeah, in the Dutch yeah. room. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Stormbringer, you're getting you know sat on the end Stormbringer, of your bed. Sat on the end of your bed. I mean, sitting in the beanbag. Yeah, like a yeah. Melbourneian prince in a beanbag. Yeah. I'm sure they have beanbags, Melbourneian princes. Whereas, uh, I'm sure they have. I'm sure. Imra was full of them. Filled, filled with what? What would they be filled with? Wouldn't be polystyrene bits, would it? Be like you know, uh, fingernails of slaves. Yeah, the, the eyeballs of uh, <laughs> turbot or something like that. Eyeballs of barbarians from Og or something. Anyway, but um, yeah, we, we we did it around the dining room table at my mum and dad's house. And I think Simon played it. Yeah, I remember yeah. him being. He was very keen to play it. Wasn't very keen to play it, and he was very solemn. Mm. Solemn. And the only thing I remember about it, and you, you might have a, a more recollection. No. Do you not? No. Not really. It was, it was set around Brie, because did you have that Brie supplement? I got the Brie supplement, yeah. 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 Um, and it was set around Brie, and I seem to remember being attacked by orcs. Of course. And I, I, I think one of our characters died. In that encounter. Yeah, I think my done because the, the critical table, the, the, the injuries in critical tables are quite savage and brutal. Yeah. You get a high roll, you can have your head taken clean off. Yeah. I seem to remember that uh, it, it kind of disrupted things because yeah. we got into the mood of, uh, yeah. of Brie and being these characters, mm. and uh, we had this conflict and it actually ended very quickly. Yeah. We've recently played it again, haven't we? Online oh, yeah. with uh, Steve Ray. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That good. was... Good. It was good fun, I enjoyed it. Yeah. It came back to me that... My, my experience of, of Merp, revisiting Merp, kind of quite odd, because of all the games that we've looked at over the podcast, there's a lot of games that we've played back in the day that we're very familiar with. And so when you look at the rules again you're already familiar with it so it seems like an old friend you know we've talked about Dungeon Master's Guide and what a mess that is but it didn't feel like a mess when I revisited it because well I'm familiar with it it's yeah. never really gone away whereas Merp has gone away so when I looked at it again it's a bit like one of those um, it's a bit like Doctor Who you know when he meets his old one of his old selves oh yeah and he doesn't quite like it or understand why he's behaving in a particular way yeah, but so like that so John Pertwee meeting Patrick Trader yeah <laughs> Yeah, pull that flute away. Yeah, what are you doing with that whistle? Look at you with your ruffled shirts. <laughs> anyway, but it felt a bit like that because when, when I looked at the rules again, after all these years, I thought, what did I see in this? Yeah. It's a bit bonkers. Yeah. It's convoluted, it's, it's complicated, it's endless tables. Yeah. It's such a convoluted system. There's more There's more tables than Ikea, isn't there? There is more tables than Ikea. And the thing is, it's one of those forget. If I, if I looked at it now, if I went to drive through. Or Amazon, I'd a quick look on the old, you know, look, look preview thing. Yeah. I'd, what, I'd think, nah, move on, move on. What next. the hell's that? Yeah. But obviously, back in the day, I, I didn't think that. I read it and thought, yeah, it all seems reasonable to the point where we're actually going to play this. Yeah. It was a strange experience, you know, of looking back at it, which I've not, all the other games we've looked at, I've not really had that experience. No. You no. know, because they've either seemed quite good and you thought oh, yeah. quite a good game or oh, the familiar whereas Merp is, is unfamiliar I'd forgotten yeah. it 
Yeah. But equally, it's a bit bonkers. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Let's uh, let's have a look at these uh, rules in a bit of uh, detail then. So uh, we've got the usual format. What are yeah. the three highlights you want to look at? And then we'll look at the duff stuff. So first of all, what's your first one? Can we not do three duff things and one highlight? Can we not do the way around. That's um, not the format. Well, I suppose the um, the races in it are interesting yeah, because that that's, that's the as we may go on to discuss in a moment, that really is the only bit of Tolkien in it. That's the only bit of the rules yeah. that feels Tolkien-esque, isn't it? When I've been looking at it recently, uh, that's the thing that struck me. There's nothing really in the no. core rulebook no. to fire you up about Middle of Earth. It's, no. The only thing there is is like the background to the different races, isn't it? The monsters. Yeah. yeah. And that's very perfunctory, very thorough, but yeah. not very imaginative. Yeah, it's like a list of list of facts about races. They get yeah. on with it, they don't get on with what they think. But but yeah, that's the only bit that feels the rest of it could be any fantasy game, couldn't it? Yeah, could be any fantasy game. Yeah, bolted on. But they, they do a good job of the races and giving you that that insight. But that, that's I suppose that's a highlight of sorts. Yes, because it's the only bit that feels Tolkien-esque. Yeah. The character creation uh, I found a bit tricky because I had a go at doing it um, as we were doing the research for this. And uh, obviously it's counterintuitive to my um, basic role-playing brain Yeah. because although it uses a D100, it's not really a percentile system, is it? No, no, it's a bit weird. It's a roll-high You roll a D100 and then you add a load of bonuses that you may or may not have. Yeah. And you subtract certain penalties that you may or may not have. And they look on a table yeah. for a result. That's it. That's essentially how it all works one way or another. There's a yeah. table for everything, isn't there? So using your skills, you, uh, depending on your race and uh, on your uh, yeah. occupation, you can uh, increase it in increments of five, can't you? Yeah. And uh, I put it on Twitter, this couch sheet that I did, and someone said, all right, I think you'll find you're not supposed to accumulate the uh, bonuses. They're supposed to come separately. And I thought, oh, God. Yeah, right. Yeah. But that's the problem we're talking, isn't it? That's the problem we're talking. It attracts people like that. It attracts people like that. (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, it is the the only thing that makes it Middle-earth, isn't it, really? The characters that you play. Because there's very little... When you think when you think of the books, that's all about the topography and the maps and the place and uh, the yeah. Middle Earth. This is just about the people, isn't it? That's all yes. you've got. So you don't you don't get any any bits of se- that all comes separately, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, and they're, they're all in a way because the supplements for it, the Bree supplement. Yeah, the Bree one. I'm sure you have the, the one about the Knights of Rohan. I'm sure about that yeah. as well. I'm yeah. I've, I've recently bought uh, Shellob's Lair yeah. and the, the supplements are really they good are, they, were, uh, they were good they, they sat strangely at odds with the rules because they were very atmospheric the one we played with Steve I think that's what came across wasn't it the, yeah the, the setting actually did come alive yes you know, it, did. it did feel like Middle Earth but the rules and the system is weirdly at odds yeah with the setting yeah weirdly at odds and I think that that's one of the things I've learned from doing this podcast, so particularly over the last 18 months, is that I've always been a bit agnostic when it comes to this idea that um, rules have any influence on the game that you play. Yeah, I've always yeah. thought, you know, so yeah, I think it's just because we played BRP for such a long yeah. time that, you know, when... Tried to do everything with it. Yeah. Yeah. 
when you've got um, a hammer, everything looks like a nail, doesn't it? So yeah. if you've got one <laughs> system, you yeah. think, oh, well, you know, you can do anything with it. But what you realise, and, and, and this particular game proves it, yeah. is that setting and rules do have to come together yes. somewhere, don't they? Well, they, they do, because when we were playing Steve's game, we were there in Bree, um, the, the, the Prancing Pony and all that. We yeah, were kind of all good. those places that you thought, this is Tolkien-esque. And and we, when, we, we invented some story about us being... Uh, and it, it, protecting the chickens as the local farm that's that was right. our uh, right. role wasn't yeah. it in Bree yeah. yeah it felt it felt very tokenist but then as soon as you had to roll a dice and you rolled a d100 and then you go okay what are my modifiers uh, plus 30 oh there's a penalty of minus 10 now look on the whatever table the manoeuvre table or the, yeah. the bolt spell table or the crush attack table. that suddenly took you right out of Tolkien and put you in some simulationist war game yeah that's what it felt like you know and so that was it was it did feel the jar quite jarring yeah and that that suppose that comes to your next highlight which is combat isn't it so yeah. you're right when it came to combat we were very meticulous in setting us this ambush for troll that was visiting yeah. this yeah. barrow at night yeah and uh, we were very careful because we it kind of worked out that this was going to be quite deadly yeah so I think tactically that's quite interesting because that's the same as um, uh, RuneQuest in that regard, yeah, isn't yeah. it? That self-preservation will out that you yeah. were trying, trying your hardest to make sure that um, you, you know you were going to yeah. do this well. It, it, yeah, but, it, but as I say, the, the combat system, you, again, what you said, you roll the 100 and you add your bonuses and then often there will be critical rolls, won't there? So there are critical tables for every type of weapon and the criticals can be quite devastating can't they yeah. but and in a way that was quite good fun it was yeah. quite it was quite good fun rolling on a critical table and seeing what happened you know yeah, yeah. sever hand or something like that it was fun but it isn't Tolkien-esque no and you know an example is it? it's like the bit where Borom, Boromir gets killed isn't it like Boromir yeah. gets hit with arrows doesn't he yeah he keeps going I mean, the, the movie keeps going that's Tolkien-esque, isn't it? Yeah. But in the game, hit in the chest with an arrow would probably read something like, uh, lungs punctured, choke on your own blood, drop dead next round. Yeah. Because it says things like that, doesn't yeah, it? it does, you know, yeah, it does. Like crushed, crushed pelvis or fractured fractured spleen or whatever. Yeah. Uh, you, and that doesn't feel Tolkien-esque. No. Tolkien's very much, for, to me, about people holding out against... Yeah. yeah, you know, hacking down orcs. And well, very prosaic, isn't it? An epic in its approach, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. You know, that's the... Whereas, whereas the game is, is actually quite visceral, you know, and, and maybe a, if it was just a straight fantasy game, you'd probably have a different view of it. Yeah. Think, well, it's doing, it's well, doing what it does quite yeah. well. But, but it's a role master. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Role master yeah. So that role master, you might think, well, this, this is what you want from a game. But, but it doesn't, it just does not feel talking esque no. in the slightest. I think. The role master and that approach to um, all those tables appeals to a certain kind of person. And it's the same me- bloke who commented on Twitter. Yeah, uh, yeah, probably. probably. <laughs> but I, I can see, I can see how that kind of almost systems thinking mm. or algorithm, yeah, algorithmic yeah, yeah, thinking. Yeah, yeah. It's like pre-computer games, so kind of programming a yes. response. Yeah, you know. So yeah. th- if this is this, then this. 
That's yeah. how it feels to me. <laughs> and it, basic. If then go to. If, yeah. and, and what it provides is a colourful description of what's happened. Yes. Rather than using your own imagination to yes. describe what happens. Yes. It gives certain... Yes, we've not quite hit the, the days of narrative games yet. So no. what people thinking, how can we make a game, how can we make the combat more colourful or more narrative? So what we'll do is have these tables which will, will tell you yeah. what happens. You know, so it's one step up from RuneQuest with hit locations and a fumble table. It gives you a table for kind, not quite every time you hit something with a sword, but almost every time you hit someone with a sword, it will give you a table to say, and this it, is what happens. And it gives a more interesting, creative result than just you hit. Yes. And for, and for some people, I can see how that's appealing. You and can, I can, yeah, you can. And, and I suppose, yeah, you can see maybe how that comes out of people back in the day playing, maybe people who designed it playing D&D and playing a warrior with 90 hit points and doing the boring churn of being, you know, lost 10, lost 15, or lost 5, or lost 20, churning it down, one thing, well, this doesn't feel right. Let's have a system that gives colour to combat, but every yeah. time you hit someone, well, what's happened? You've not just hit someone, you've done something to them. Yeah, you know? there's been a result. So in that, in that sense, it's, it's an interesting system, but it doesn't feel Tolkien-esque. No. That's the problem. That's and, what, and it's also, it is cumbersome as well. I mean, yeah. it's, it was fun playing it with Steam. We all had a good laugh every time we had to roll on the table. It was like, yeah. oh, but it was like a drum roll. Yes. Oh, here we go. Crush critical. What's going to happen now? And after after you'd found the table, but you found it. But that was the problem. It, it, it is cumbersome. You can't get around that. No. It's a cumbersome system having to look. And, for and you need somebody who is like Steve, who's able to create the narrative, be loose enough, but also be patient enough to yeah. actually let the rules work. Uh, yes. I don't think I'm that. You know, you, I know what you mean. If, you, if you've got an impatience, of, uh, but if you've got like a degree of impatience, that so think me and you are a bit like that. Yeah. And want pace and a bit impatient. It could be a frustrating game because yeah. you're thinking almost like I should, I should know all this. I should be able to go know exactly what's happening. Yeah. What's going to happen to you at that moment, rather than leaf through some tables to find out. Yeah. 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 So. Uh, it'd be uh, remiss of us not to look at the magic because uh, that's one of your favourite areas of this expertise. Is favorite, it's my favourite area of the game. Because why are you playing a fantasy game and you're not interested in magic? That's yeah. what I would say to people. Yeah. And, and, and Tolkien's magic is a particular form of magic, isn't it? It is. Now, again, I, I, the magic system, I quite like it because it breaks it down into little schools of magic. Not only schools, but spheres. Yeah. Water magic, fire magic, you know, that kind of thing. And then gives you a list of relevant spells or detection essence spells and that kind of thing, doesn't it? That's how it, yeah. it works. Um, so it's not a bad magic system at all. It's as clunky as the rest of it, but it's not bad. But at the risk of repeating myself, it, it's not Tolkien-esque. No. I mean, there's like a, there is a fireball spell in there. Yeah, yeah. And a firebolt and electricity bolt. My elf had an electricity bolt. And it just feels like well, this, there's none of that in Tolkien, is there? No. I mean, the other magic in Tolkien is quite subtle and mysterious, isn't it? You don't yeah. really get you don't get wizards casting Forking. lightning. Forking. Yeah, you yeah. don't get wizards casting lightning bolts on people, do you? You know, it's it's almost about 
bit like I always remember the I always remember the article in White Dwarf the mine you know the mines in Moria yeah where what they did in that when they give you the pregens I think they made Gandalf more like a cleric didn't yeah. they yeah because they said the magic in uh, it's more like cleric or druidic magic rather than yeah proper full on polymorph self teleport you know does not but in, in Merc, there is a bit of that, isn't there? Which you know doesn't fit. Doesn't no. just doesn't fit with Tolkien, to my mind. No, no. Again, you use the tables, don't you, for the results? Yeah. And I thought this is where it worked uh, quite interesting because one of the things you you did a, an electricity bolt on this troll, didn't yes. you? Yes. And you rolled quite a lot. I did a, a bit of a duff roll, yeah. And yeah, his yeah. hair stood on end. That's right, yeah. And it was, I, it was hilarious. It was funny, yeah. Because, yeah. yeah, it's funny because you wouldn't necessarily think of it. Yeah, you wouldn't, you wouldn't come up yeah. with that, would you? Yeah, that's good. Yeah. So I think overall, what we're saying is it's a clunky system. It's a clunky, it is a clunky system. You can unpick, you can understand why it feels of its time, doesn't it? As yeah. you said, you can understand why. You can perhaps understand what the people who designed it were trying to do. Yeah. You know, like you say, give you a kind of fill narrative via mechanics. Yeah. So roll some dice, roll on some tables, and that will then put onto the into the story an event. Yes. Within combat, an event yeah. of sorts. It's that, isn't it? Rather rather than saying you know, powered by the apocalypse, roll, roll nine or more. You've done it, seven to seven to eight. Yeah. You've done it, but you've got to come. You have to come up with what that means. There's none of that. It, it, it's a strange thing because it did make me want to look at it again. Look at Rollmaster. I think I liked it a bit more than you did, which is unusual mm. because it is a more rules-driven system. Yeah, yeah. But I found something attractive about this idea of, uh, I suppose, it going back to that Hobbit. Spectrum game thing where yeah. I preordained results and seeing what, what would happen. I'd quite like to have another go at it, really. Yeah, I like the uh, setting as well. I think um, I'm attracted to looking at one of some of the new ones, you know, for example, One Ring and uh, mm. some of those yeah, new yeah. Ad- adaptations yeah. because. I've always veered away from uh, Middle Earth because I've never liked its portentousness, you know, the idea that everything is so operatic and uh, writ large. I've read the books again and my favourite chapter after reading those thousand odd pages... So the last one? It's the penultimate oh, one. is it? Because no, you're almost near the end. <laughs> yeah. I can see that. Do you, do you remember this? This is where they return to the Shire. And it's called the scourging of the, the, the yeah. Scar- Shire. Yeah. They come back and installed in there, there's been a lot of uh, sheriffs and uh, this, um, these uh, hoodlums are in charge, these ruffians, yeah. you know, like a, a gang bosses, if you like, <laughs> headed by this sharky who t- turns out to be Soroman, who's like retreated back to the Shire and installed this kind of bureaucratic. System in Evil wizard is a bureaucrat. And I was thinking, did I really have to wait a thousand pages to get, get to the good to, bit? Get to oh, you did, yes. a story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You you felt at that point the way that Frodo felt when he saw the Eagles <laughs> and thought, You made me walk all this way, and yet you could have summoned Eagles. Come on. <laughs> 
<laughs> that's what he's trying to get you to feel. But what I, what I thought, and uh, playing in Steve's game, set in Bree in the Shire, yeah. is that it is a very evocative. It and is, yes, I thought that. Yeah. It, it surprised me, actually, how, uh, how much I enjoyed the set. Because, as you say, we're not big fans of Tolkien. Yeah. But it did come alive, and you did think, well, it's not, it's not a bad setting, is it? And if you if you if you've got a table using the uh, idea of like the Dracula dossier yeah. as a handout, the reason why they chose the Dracula is that everybody knows the story of Dracula. Yeah. So even if you've not read the book, you know the general you, you just, yeah. And it's the same with Lord of the Rings, isn't it? If I set a lot of people and you around the table and say, yeah. you've seen Lord of the Rings, we're in the Shire. In the Shire, yes. You, you live in England, it's the Shire. Yes, that's what it is. <laughs> yes, yeah, 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 yeah. So, yeah. There, there is something very appealing about it and that idea that there are uh, ancient um, folk um, stories behind every single tree or yeah, every yeah. single uh, artifact that you pick up. I think it's quite appealing. Yeah. You're a convert. I am a convert. A convert. You know me. I have like flashes of impulses and <laughs> interest, and I've got I've got myself into Tolkien, but I'm not sure that the role master Merp is the way to deliver it. No, I don't. I don't think it is really. It's, it doesn't doesn't sit right. So a valiant effort, you know. Yeah. And and in itself, it's an interesting system. But as it's, once you once you stick it into Middle Earth, it doesn't. Feel quite, no. sit quite right. I don't think that, no. that's the problem. Well, thanks a lot for uh, your consultancy in uh, in this uh, corner. It's uh, been a bit noisy. We've got some beetles playing in the background. Yes. Well, well I, I, said I, there were, I said there was no worms, but I didn't promise there wouldn't be beetles in <laughs> my dirt hall. Very good. I'm going to leave leave Middle Earth now. Go back to the Young Kingdoms where I belong. Goodbye. <laughs> Goodbye. Thing is, I like The Scouring of the Shire. It's the most action-packed chapter where there's personal threat and things are done at a more individualistic perspective. However, it turns out that people read it as a satire of post-war Britain with the officious bureaucratic orders of Sharkey representing Attlee's Labour government programme. It's a blooming minefield. Thanks to Graham for his contribution and he would like to thank Ron Abernethy from the Sunnyside podcast show for his assistance in the recording. There's more to come from Daily Dwarf in part two as he'll be looking at how Merp appeared in White Dwarf. Next time, Liz returns to face the Games Master screen and we look in detail at some of her career highlights, including the reunion of the Fellowship of the Troll and her distinctive approach to monster design. We'll be entering the Groggle Box, looking at Ralph Batsky's Lord of the Rings film. At the time of releasing this, February 2020, Appendix N Book Club have coincidentally released their episode on The Return of the King, and they offer a perspective that are not previously considered about the movies. Make sure you check it out. If you haven't had enough of me talking rubbish, I was the guest on the Anchor podcast, Local Ludus, parping on about kit bashing in Gamma World and Savage World's Strontium Dog. As Liz said, for me, it's important who you play with as what you play. 
And isn't that a real true? And you'll have a chance to play with some great people at Virtual Grog Meet, which is taking place for patrons of the podcast on the 17th and 18th of April. If it's your first time online or you're a hardened professional, then please come along and play. We're grateful to everyone who listens, to patrons, old and new, and those coming and going for the support that they've given us over the years. We have enhanced a few things on uh, Patreon this time, so we hope that you'll support us. Thanks to the new patrons that have joined the Grog Squad as honorary members of the Armchair Adventurers Club in December and January. So, here we go. Sitting on the comfy chair level, there is Jeff Fishwick, Chris Robinson, Justin Woodman, Jesse Reisman, Mark Willoughby, Christian Scott, Michael Kerwin and Mark Turnage. Thank you to you all. Someone who's added a fancy poof to their armchair is Craig Shepherd. Kick back, Craig. Thank you. At the sofa so good level, I like to roll on a table, relevant to the subject under discussion. And the best thing about Merp is the critical tables. So I'm going to roll, thank Thomas Henshaw, prior to hitting him with a rolled up newspaper. Oh, I've rolled big. 88, which added to my mods means that I get 110. So that crushes your hip, plus 35 hits, stunned for two rounds, active the following four rounds, and then dies of nerve failure. Thanks, Thomas. Adding one of those fancy rugs around his chair, you know, like those your mum put around the toilet in the 70s, is Dr. RPG himself. Ian Griff Griffiths. I'm going in for a grapple. Okay. That's 73. Added to my mods gives me 90. So a vicious hold around his neck. Knocked out, sprained neck and minus 60 to activity. There you go. Throw a sickie on me. Thanks Griff. There are more crits next time as a thanks to those who have joined in Feb. Right, I'm going to stick a loot on here for James, known on Twitter, at Civil Shep. He uh, stockpiles the grub pod for when he needs to stay up all night during lambing season. And no matter how bad your day's been, just think about where his hands are right now. Until next time, adios amigos. Adios.